All right, Revelation 16. Would you turn there with me? Uh, Revelation 16. Um, so um, if, if I could put Revelation 16 in a, in a picture, it would be two pictures, okay? <clears throat> but the biggest picture of all would be a picture of a God who is marshalling on the world and preparing it for his ultimate arrival and the, the setting up of an eternal kingdom forever, okay, that we will be a part of. But as you know, this is a sin-sick and fallen world. A lot has to change between now and then. We've already looked at two different um, uh, sequences of judgments. The first that we saw were the seal judgments. Out of the seal judgments came trumpet judgments. Out of the trumpet judgments came this hiatus, as it were. We've been studying this hiatus for the past several, for the past few chapters. Now we're in Revelation 16. 16 is now going to be the last sequence of, of judgments. They are the bowl or the vile judgments. Depending on your translation, we'll use either one of those two words. They mean exactly the same. doesn't change the meaning at all. But they are going to be the last seven judgments that we see here. In this singular chapter, we're going to see these seven angels They've been given these bowls or vials of God's wrath and they're commanded to go and empty their contents. Each of these angels has a specific target. We're going to look at those in just a few minutes for the contents of this vial. The the earth dwellers, as it were, have already suffered from the seal and the trumpet judgments. But this final series of judgments will climax God's plan and ultimately lead to Christ's return to earth. Now, the overwhelming picture... Uh, apart from this, you know, God's marshalling and him preparing for his return of his son is going to be this, this picture of disease and pain and suffering. Uh, one early church father by the name of uh, Irenaeus of Lyons said, the ultimate causes of these conditions is not located in natural upheaval, but in divine action. In other words, he says that the things that we are seeing, it's almost like we couldn't produce it. It's going to be so severe and so tragic. No human being can make this stuff happen. It's going to be, and it has to be at the hands of God. The crass rebellion of the human heart, he says, is also displayed. Since through all of these tragedies, men still will not repent. Oh, what a sad commentary. And what a stark realization about the understanding of the impact of sin. It is not a disease. Okay? That's why as as a counselor, I do not hold to the disease model of addictions. When people go for treatment of addictions, this is kind of a side thing real quick. I'm already chasing my first rabbit. Can you believe it? People get treatment for addictions. Conventional treatment without God says it's a disease. And, and you, may, you, you may suffer from this disease for the rest of your life. That's why in AA, they stand up and they'll say, hi, my name is Chris and I'm an alcoholic, but I haven't had a drink in 20 years. If you haven't had a drink in 20 years, how are you still an alcoholic? <clears throat> I don't believe in the disease model. I believe in an overcoming model. I believe that the gospel can help you overcome any addiction. It heals. 
okay? So, but the problem here is that, including addictions, every problem, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go to sin. It's, it's rooted in sin. But I'm going to tell you, sin has its clutch around the, human, the heart of the human race so bad that, that even in the face of divine judgment, and we know it's divine judgment. Even the, even the unrepentant will know it's God's judgment. will still be unrepentant. Can you believe that? Therefore, this chapter is a lesson on the value of repentance. That's <clears throat> just a big word for us to kind of, um, kind of wrap our minds around. I think it's one of the coolest words in our Christian dictionaries. Um, you may think of repentance as focusing only on the negative. Well, I did something bad. Well, of course you did something bad. Guess what sinners do? Sin. Okay. You are a, therefore you will. Should it ever shock you that you? No, shouldn't. But that's why we have repentance. I love the quote. Adrian Rogers said a long time ago, he says, I've, always, I've done more repenting since I became a Christian than the repenting that I did to become a Christian. Okay, so it's a pretty word, but it has a ne- it does. Some people have a negative connotation to it. All right, well let's jump right in. Let's look at these bold judgments. Verse one. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, "Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God." So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast. And worshipped its image. A targeted audience, like I already mentioned, what are they getting? These sores, these, these boils, as it were. It is an awesome thought to consider that almost the entire population of the world suffering from a, a painful ma- malady that nothing can cure. There will be no cure for this. There's no ointment, there's no pills, nothing, no cure. Constant pain affects a person's disposition so that he finds it difficult to get along with other people. Human relations during that period will certainly be at their worst. You're going to see that exemplified later on. These painful ulcers remind us of the distressing boils that plague the people of Egypt in Exodus chapter 9, verse 3. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters, angel in charge of the waters, say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Irenaeus, um, in a famous passage, once remarked that the whole exodus of the people out of Egypt, which took place under divine guidance, was a type and image of the exodus of the church which should take place from among the Gentiles. And he's meaning Gentiles, meaning the unsaved here. Okay, now Irenaeus, again, he's an early church father and he was writing about this passage. And for this cause, he leads it out at last from this world into his own inheritance, 
which Moses, the servant of God, did not bestow, but which Jesus, the son of God, shall give for an inheritance. And if anyone will devote a close attention to those things which are stated by the prophets with regard to the time of the end and those which John, the disciple of the Lord, saw in the apocalypse, he will find that the nations are to receive the same plagues universally as Egypt then did particularly. So what Irenaeus is saying, you are seeing an exodus of the church. Okay. Now, this is interesting because this view would still be compatible with a pre-trib or even a post-trib rapture. Because even with the post-trib rapture, you're going to have tribulation saints, the church. So they'll be ushered in. But with a post-trib, which this kind of fits, I think a little bit more, more better, um, says Irenaeus is saying, listen, you, you've got this church which is going to be called unto the Lord. <coughs> <coughs> And it's going to be very reminiscent of the way that Israel was called out of Egypt. Now, that whole imagery of out of Egypt is something we've heard before, not only from Israel, right? But also the prophets who said, out of Egypt, I have called my son. Remember, there was a flight of Jesus and his parents to Egypt for a season. Okay. And then back out. Okay. In God's government, the punishment fits the crime. Some of y'all think I'm too young, but I remember a show called Beretta. And remember the theme song. If you can't do the time, don't do the crime. Okay? Well, we're, the punishment, the time, is going to fit the crime. Now look at what happens here. There's some interesting uh, illustrations from the scriptures. Pharaoh tried to drown Jewish boy babies, but it was his own army that eventually drowned in the sea, Red Sea. Haman planned to hang Mordecai on the gallows and to exterminate the Jews, but he himself was hanged on the gallows and his family was exterminated. King Saul refused to obey God and slay the Amalekites, so he was slain by an Amalekite. Is that something? Um, this, this issue in verse 3 about um, this bowl, pouring his bowl into the sea, it became like blood of a corpse. Blood of a corpse. Um, uh, I, this is only an idea. And I'm, I, I may want to write about it. Because there are not a lot of commentators who agree on what that really is talking about. Blood of a corpse. And I got to thinking about this, and uh, pardon me if I get a little bit PG-13. But I kept thinking back to my time in emergency services. And um, being a firefighter, and on occasion I would come across a corpse in a home. And anytime that happened, uh, law enforcement is automatically involved. It's just no matter no matter wh- what happened, you got to call because an investigation has to be done. Well, our fire investigators who were, you know, who uh, who were with us at the department at the time were meticulous. Uh, they were experts in every sense of the word, and they were professional. These men knew what they were doing, and. Uh, uh, I was with a family. There was a fatality, and I was um, part of my duties that morning. I was in the home, and there he was. Uh, 
And um, the investigator was with me. He took one look at him and he said, this guy was murdered and then the house was set on fire. He said, I can tell you that right now. I looked at him. You got to be kidding me. How can you tell that? By the blood. By the blood. He said that blood of someone who dies in a house fire looks different than someone who didn't. Okay? You can tell by the blood. Now, I'm using what we call an organic, okay, because that's organic, um, uh, meaning that's a bodily function. It's how God created, you know, human blood to work in those situations. I'm not so sure that maybe what they're talking about here is this blood of a corpse. These are dead people walking, and they don't even know it yet. This human race that is spitting in the face of God, as it were, unrepentant, unregenerate, angry at God, they're dead on the inside. Blood of a corpse. I'm going, to, I'm going to investigate that a little bit more. I don't know. There, there might be something, something there. There may be something that the Word is teaching us about being dead on the inside because, you know, this whole eternal life thing and, and what we talk about in the Scriptures with the Gospel, I mean, it, it obviously, you know, we obviously talk about that imagery when you're alive, you know, <clears throat> lost, found, dead, alive, dead to sin, alive in Christ. Verse 8, the fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. Same people who had the sores. Okay. Remembering that now the water systems are useless. That's from the uh, second and third bowls. You can imagine how people will suffer from thirst. And the effects of intense solar activity. Even this judgment will not bring men to their knees. The blasphemy shows that they have become like the false beastly God that they have that they worship. Elsewhere outside of chapter 16, this blasphemy is attributed only to the beast, but they've been handed over to it. You know. Verse 10, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not Repent of their deeds. Now the progression in this plague seems to focus as its target on the, on the very seat of Satan's power. So it, it really seems like now when we look at this vial being poured out that, I mean, God is really setting things in motion. Previously, all these judgments have been, have been centered on, on, on the unregenerate human race. Now it's touching Satan or, or the, the power of, of, of Satan's side, this, this throne of the beast, the, the center of his kingdom. 
In hallucinations, men bite their own tongues in circumstances of great excitement. The confusion of images shows that the sense of of pain on experiencing the vision was so strong that it could not find an adequate plastic expression. That's a a term used by the uh, commentator there, and I cited that, that source. What he means there by plastic is synthetic. There's nothing else that they could have done. Have you ever been in so much pain that you're gnashing your teeth, you're clenching your jaws, you're, you're clenching your fists? You're, you're just, that's what's going on here. Gnawing at their tongues. Still, no repentance. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. <clears throat> And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Now, how many of you have a Bible whose words are in red? Jesus is going to speak directly these next, this next verse. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Now, this is, this is getting really, really intense here. So let's kind of, we'll break it down here. At this point, if you look at your uh, uh, handout there, Roman numeral 6, letter A, At this point, John beholds another phenomenal development. Three evil spirits, okay? We just talked, they appear like frogs. They come, they come one from each of the beasts that he's seeing there, okay? Why that imagery? Well, frogs were unclean animals in the scriptures, and they were always viewed with a certain loathing by most civilizations. Exodus chapter 8, you can cross-reference that because frogs constituted one of the plagues on the Egypt and, and may be the background for John seeing these, these frogs. And I mean, you know, frogs in their natural state are not that cute of an animal, in my opinion. Right? I mean, you go out and, you know, pictures of frogs can be cute. Right? Right? I mean, it, it, how you draw them, but the actual thing, you know, warts and just, they're just ugly. They don't even look cool at all, you know? I mean, so yeah, we can understand this, this, a cultural saying, a culture saying that this animal, there's just something about it. No, no way. We don't, we don't like that. Now, although clearly from the text, the frogs only have despicable, uh, only have the despicable nature of these Amphibians, and, and in fact, they're, they're they're evil spirits. I mean, that's that's John is seeing representate, or excuse me, he's seeing something. And he's trying to represent it by by something he can associate it with, right? Okay. Now, there's much discussion here about Jesus's words because right smack dab in the middle of these judgments, we have Jesus speaking. He says, "I'm going to come like a thief." Now, here's here's some. Some of the, the discussion here that's kind of confusing, perhaps. This imagery of Christ coming as a thief, which you and I both know thieves usually don't announce they're coming. They, they, they don't, right? 
I've never had a thief tell me he's going to come at X hour on X day. Thieves don't do that. Why would he say, I'm going to come, but I'm a thief? Okay. Something that's secretive, thief, but I'm coming, that's not secretive. Okay. This paradox is something that he kind of gives an answer to in his own words. Blessed. By the way, this is a beatitude. Did you know that? It's, it's an apocalyptic beatitude. And he says to those, his church, his bride, those redeemed, because there, there has to be someone he's speaking to and there has to be someone who will qualify for whom he's speaking these words. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Does this remind you of any parables that he gave in the Gospels about staying awake? Who? Passover, telling the disciples, hey, you know, you can't stay awake. I'm going to go over here and pray. But there was a parable that he taught. Remember the parable? And back here, I see some hands raised. What's the parable? Ten maidens or the ten virgins. That's right. Remember about trimming their wigs and, you know. So... This is not strange imagery. It would be strange only to the person who isn't ready. Okay? In verse 16, And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. How many of you ever heard the phrase, Battle of Armageddon? Very good. All right? Do you know where it's at in the Bible? Good. That's a trick question. The phrase battle of Armageddon is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Okay. Now, but where do we get that expression? It's explained really in John's. See, what John did was funny. He said, I'm telling you, this is coming from a Hebrew word that I'm familiar with. You may not, but it's coming from a Hebrew word called Armageddon. And at which point, us readers ought to be cued in. Okay, well, tell us a little bit about the Hebrew. Well, I've given you a note that kind of explains what's going on here. So it should be noted uh, here in your notes here, I've got a blank there for you to fill in that the phrase battle of Armageddon never occurs in the scriptures. So I just mentioned that. So, uh, <clears throat> so what's going on here? Well, the term Armageddon is a transliteration for a Hebrew phrase called Mount of Megiddo. In ancient Israel, this mount, Megiddo, uh, also was a place of a key city, and it overlooked a major travel route between the great kingdoms of Mesopotamia and Egypt. Huge armies could assemble out there in the neighboring plain of Esdraelon. Thus, it is a fitting name for the location of the climactic battle. So we'll say battle of Armageddon, John is seeing what we, this marshalling of these powers in an area that from Hebrew times, they have always seen this as this is a perfect place for a great battle to, 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 to happen. As a matter of fact, Napoleon, speaking of this very place, once said it is the most natural battlefield in, in all of earth. So that's where the whole battle of Armageddon phrase comes from. 
Let's look at the seventh bowl in verse 17. <clears throat> the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Now that's different because previously all these judgments are going into the earth. This one is poured into the, to the atmosphere, the air. And a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup to drain to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. Great hailstones, about a hundred pounds. You may have a translation that uses the original term meaning a talent fell from heaven on people. And what did they do? <coughs> they cursed God again for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. Now that last verse doesn't sound too far-fetched from what human hearts are capable of doing now. <clears throat> because when two towers fell in New York City, I heard a lot of people saying, where was God? That's not a, that's, that, that whole idea is not far from what happens in this verse. If the human heart will question God in the midst of a tragedy. Have you ever noticed no one ever questions God in the midst of something good? Where was God when all this good stuff was taking place? So, so what's happening here? I, I think um, um, Warren Wearsby, who, who's a, a really good, what I call a layperson commentator, um, he's, he's a great guy to read from that you and I both, we, we can both easily understand um, the, the way that he uh, understands and, and, and comments on, on a passage of Scripture. Uh, I just kind of lifted his, his quote and put it in here for you to kind of summarize this one paragraph. The seventh bowl is, is judgment upon the dominion of Satan and the beginning of the destruction of his religious system. Okay. Let me kind of put it in another way. This is... This is not the best illustration I can think of, but I think it may be sufficient nonetheless. If he's going to try to dismantle a system before a final battle ever takes place, it lets us know that there are some things in a battle that you do beforehand um, to help secure, not that God needs the help, but just to say, hey, you know, we're going to have a, a, a very dominating victory here. One of the things you do that you, that you can do in, in, uh, uh, in war is if you have air superiority, you, you can pretty much win the war. Air superiority will knock out communication. You can, you can, you know, surgically strike. We've heard that term a lot. And, and especially since 2001 and our, and in uh, the uh, war on terror, these surgical strikes, um, notice that the seventh angel poured his bowl into the air. Okay. Uh, I'm just saying that, that there is a preemptive dismantling here of Satan's power. And he won't be able to stand. He wouldn't have been able to have stood it if his systems had stayed together. But God is just showing, hey dude, I'm just letting you know that nothing you have ever planned will be more will be stronger than I. So he's dismantling this system. What is it? He he's got several parts. A religious system mentioned in verse 17, this harlot. A political and and, and an economic 
system. We kind of we give it the name of Babylon, and that's this reference name there in, in, uh, in Revelation 18. I didn't mean verses; I meant chapters. That's why I've been, uh, that's why I put them in there. Revelation 17, and then in Revelation 18, the dismantling of this political and economic system, and his military system. Okay, with, with the armies in Revelation 19. Okay. What, do you, what does that sound like? Uh, Age-old strategy, divide and conquer. That's what he's done. Divide and conquer. So uh, I told you at the beginning, I'm going to erase all these other words. I'm going to leave this first word up here, repent. This operative word here, because we see in the midst of all these judgments, they aren't doing that. <clears throat> Let me give you three ways that we can use this text in our life uh, t- tomorrow morning. Number one, we need to understand that repentance is a heart issue, not necessarily a heartache issue. What do I mean by that? Heartaches are always situational. Everybody's sorry when they get caught. Don't base your repentance on heartache. On something temporary. Don't blame or or don't base your repentance on a temporary issue in life. Because just as soon as that issue is resolved, your repentance is gone. And I'm going to tell you, that's a rule. Okay? That's not the exception. You're not my first congregation I've ever served. You're not the first families I've ever loved on and walked with you through tragedies if you've experienced them yet or, or tragedies yet to come, and I'll walk with you through them. I remember walking through a tragedy with the family of a young boy that was a dear friend of mine I grew up with. He got killed in a car accident. And he had some extended family members in the church where my wife and I were serving. The moment they laid their nephew in the ground... They were in church every single Sunday. Every time doors were open, they were in church. Slowly but surely, all the flowers got distributed, all the casseroles got eaten. They still came to church. Then the grass started growing over that grave. Flowers were withering and they had to go replace the flowers on the grave. Months turned into years. Now they're not in church. Why? Based on the fruit that they were displaying, their repentance was based on a heartache. It was based on something situational. Reason why that's also important is because repentance may not necessarily immediately relieve your heartache. I think, <clears throat> I know, I have been thinking about a sermon series on suffering. Helping us as a church to develop and re-embrace a proper theology of suffering. Sometimes we are meant to suffer. So your repentance may not necessarily relieve this heartache, but what repentance will do 
is help you to recognize where your strength comes from. Because that heartache will go away at some point in time. Yea, though I walk through through valley of the shadow of death. There may be another valley. But my repentance has helped me to recognize who is my strength and my shield. Who is the Lord of my salvation? Who is my God? And to recognize that proper authority. Okay? Let her be. God's punishment, um, change the word is to of, God's punishment of sin is a serious matter. Okay. And I, I worded this way on purpose. I wanted to put us. God's punishment of us. Is serious business. But I want you to understand that sin are things that we say and do, feel, act, think. Sin is an expression of fallen humanity. And we like to think of sin as just something that's out there, do we not? We like to distance ourselves. From sin. It's bad. It's over there. It's it's bad. I went over to the to the dark side. You know, I could use a Star Wars term. Well, let's let's keep thinking about that. Let, let's just pretend that that's the best analogy and the best way you can think of it. Problem is you are so embraced into it, it's not as far from you as you think. The sin still has to be punished. If sin has to be punished, then who's embracing sin? Us. Okay? I mean, um, what else is embracing sin? Not only does humanity, but God's creation. We live in a fallen world. That's why at the end of Revelation, a new Jerusalem will be created, but it can't go on an old earth. It has to go on a new earth. That's what we see in the end. A new heavens and a new earth and a new city of Jerusalem coming down from the new heavens to be on the new earth. Behold, I make all things new. But we've got to be careful and not just an understanding that God's punishment is a serious matter but that we are affected by sin. Therefore, the church's prescription for sin should be a more welcome alternative. Whereas we saw in this text here over and over again, they did not repent. They did not repent. They cursed God. Also, we see here something that um, we get a good reminder of, especially when we start talking about the angel pouring his bowl um, and it affecting um, Satan's dominion, that the spirit world is a real world. Okay. It is real. 
Satan is a real person. He does walk this earth. I have never seen him. I've never been personally attacked by him. I have been attacked by evil. I've been attacked by his demons at times. I have come under severe oppression, demonic oppression. I remember once in Bible college, I I will never forget uh, that night. It was a series of nights. Several other boys were were experiencing at the exact same time um, a, 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 a great attack. On, on ourselves and, and just, just some demonic oppression going on. It's very real. Darkness is very real. Kind of give a, a, a real world illustration. When I was working in Nashville at the Lowe's Vanderbilt Plaza, that was a real swanky hotel. Great place to stay, by the way. <clears throat> and I was a porter and a valet. And uh, you would see on a regular basis you know, individuals in music business from, and from all walks of life of celebrity. And one night, uh, Ozzy Osbourne came into town and he was staying in our hotel. This was in uh, the fall of 1995. And uh, I had the, um, I do not call it a pleasure because it wasn't, but I had to interact with him when he came to the hotel. And, I, and I'm just telling y'all, just as sure as I'm standing right here, uh, I've never been terrified of being in the presence of an individual until that night. I felt demonic oppression by standing next to him and breathing the same air that he was breathing. Never have, and, and, and when he was gone, it was gone. I don't know his heart, okay, but I know his testimony and I know his lifestyle. Those of you who've been been around the block, you know it as well as I do, maybe even better. All I'm telling you is that it's real. Things of this that we consider spiritual, um, that it's somehow separated from us, it is not separated at all. Paul says, you do not wrestle with flesh and blood. That is not your, 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 your battle. Your fight is not with flesh and blood. I'm telling you, Paul says, your battle is elsewhere. It's not flesh. Therefore, your only armament is not going to be conventional weaponry. Because if you're enemy was flesh and blood, then you can rely on tanks and bazookas and machine guns. But you can't. He says, we wrestle not with flesh and blood, right? But against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. our earthly battle is in a heavenly place. It is real. And then, of course, you know, he gives such uh, an amazing um, uh, explanation of what we are to do. As a result, we take up the armor of God. 
whole armor of God, he says. He tells us to pick up a piece of weaponry. What was it? The sword of... Sword of... Sword of... Come on. I'm not going to tell you. Spirit, which is the Word of God. He didn't really tell us how to use it, though, did he? Because I wrote a paper on this a couple years ago. He only tells us, he only gives us actually one command after putting on the armor. He gives us a sword, but didn't even tell us that, you know, this, whatever. The next verb is our command. He says, pray. Pray. Pray at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. I just think that's pretty interesting that, you know. The point is, the Word of God is to give you the instructions of how to live in a real world where the spirit world is more real than maybe the real world you think is real. 